0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on a Saturday to uh, spend some time in God's Word and hopefully to grow in God's Word together. It is a pleasure for Dan and I to be here. As Tony said, uh, I'll, I'll introduce myself a little bit to you and, and just what we do. As he said, we uh, we both uh, serve an organization called 1517, which In short, exists to spread the gospel in as many ways to as many people as possible. And so, uh, each in, well, six days a week we have, uh, we have articles, we have 20 different podcasts in order to do that, we make YouTube videos, we host conferences, and we publish books, one of which, uh, Dan and I wrote together called Scandalous Stories, a sort of commentary on the parables of Jesus, which is why we're going to be talking to you today about the parables of Jesus. We're going to be going over some of what we've written in here, certainly not All of it, and it won't be exactly what is written in there. So if you do happen to purchase the book, it will be different than what you hear today. But, uh, great to be here again with you, uh, with you today. Uh, you know, you mentioned, Tony, that it's sort of like meeting the Beatles, uh, for you. Uh, and I don't know how this joke will land with everybody, but, to the degree that Dan and I represent the Beatles, we are kind of like the Pete Best of the Beatles, which is to say the drummer who was kicked out of the Beatles. So uh, anyhow, uh, let us begin with a word of brief prayer, and then we'll dive into our passage for this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word, to learn from your word, and ultimately... Uh, to have our faith increased by your word. We pray that you'd speak through my very imperfect and feeble lips now as we gather around it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the passage I'm going to go over this morning is Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. It's actually two parables, but uh, as you'll see, the parables basically are teaching the same truth, and so I'm going to go over both of them. I think I will have the record today for the shortest set of two parables we'll run through. Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33. It says this, He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, three measures of flour, till it was all leavened. This is God's word. The story is told, whether fictional or not, I don't know, but nevertheless, the story has been told that Darius, the king of Persia, sent Alexander the Great a bag of sesame seeds. And the reason he did so was to suggest to Alexander, his opponent, the number of his troops. The sesame seeds being fairly small, a bag full of sesame seeds would have suggested quite a number of troops that would go up against Alexander's forces. It was an intimidation tactic, of course. And in response, Alexander sent back a sack Of mustard seeds, not only more numerous because of their smaller size, but also more fiery, more spicy. It's amazing what uh, great world leaders will stoop to in order to prove their power. But nonetheless, you get the point. They were trying to intimidate each other. They were trying to show off each other's strength. And no one wanted to do that more than Alexander the Great and I suppose when we read a parable like we just read about the mustard seed and having God's kingdom compared to it, we might want to think about the mustard seed similar to the way that Alexander used the mustard seeds. We might want to think about God's kingdom as being powerful, like a numerous army that is too hard to stop we might, might want to think of god's kingdom as being something that is even yeah scary to the outside world don't mess with this kingdom But as much as we might might want to believe what's being presented about the kingdom from the context of the rest of the kingdom's parables, it's abundantly clear that this is not the picture Jesus wants us to have. It just isn't. I mean, the the fact is, uh, even though his disciples may have wanted it to be different, they will find out as the rest of the world will, that the kingdom of God does not come in the way we expect most of the time. In fact, it's entirely different than what they had pictured. And that fact has not changed even to this day. So, the question I want to go over in the time we have left in this talk is, what can we expect from this mustard seed, from this yeast found in our parable today about how this kingdom of God actually, actually operates in the world. And the first thing, the first thing that we see is that God's kingdom operates from the outside. God's kingdom operates from the outside. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, one of the first things he told them in the Lord's Prayer was to ask for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. Now, why would he instruct us to pray such a thing? Well, at its most simple level, the reason he would instruct us to pray such a thing is because naturally, no one actually has God reigning in their hearts as King. Unfortunately, we bear the marks of our first father, Adam, who through his disobedience to God, essentially chose to try and be king himself rather than let God rule as king over his life. And the fact is, every time we do something that we know God has said not to do, or dwell in thoughts God has said not to think, or say things that we know we ought not to say, To some degree, we naturally show that we do not possess the kingdom within, naturally. There is not, as some would say in more New Agey material, a spark of the divine. Yes, we're created in God's image, true. But that image has been marred by sin and a desire to be sovereign ourselves. In fact, the Bible's picture of humanity naturally is an ugly picture ever since sin falls into the world. If you ever want a real, well, uh, kind of low anthropology, or maybe another way of saying it is, if you ever want to see a really, really dour assessment of humanity, just read the Apostle Paul for a little bit and you'll find it real fast. I mean, he he doesn't mince words Where when he says in the book of Romans, quote, there is no one who seeks God. No, not one. Now, if you dig into that in the original languages, what you're going to find is that what Paul meant when he said no one is, shockingly, no one. Not one naturally seeks God. Like a child who refuses to eat their veggies, and I have much experience with such a thing as a father of three boys, we naturally refuse to submit to God in our lives as king. So, like the garden, like the bread presented by Jesus in our parable, the seed and the yeast of God's kingdom must be planted from the outside. And the good news for you and I is that in order to save his creation, God does graciously plant the seed. He mixes in the yeast of his kingdom in our lives. It is entirely external. Our righteousness is no righteousness at all. The righteousness we need must be from the outside, must be given to us. Because as Isaiah says, even our good deeds are as filthy rags before the eyes of a holy God. Yes, we need something separate. And the righteousness we need is given to us by Jesus. By His amazing grace through faith... God exchanges our unrighteousness for the righteousness of his son. He plants it in the garden and places it in the bread of our souls. The kingdom is planted within us from outside of us. This is why Paul will exclaim in the same book of Romans in which he says, there is no one who seeks God, no, not one, and that all are worthy of condemnation as a result Nevertheless, he will go on to say, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from our natural works, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So that's the first point that we see about this little parable. That in order for God's kingdom to be a part of this at all, to be a part of the garden at all, to be a part of the, the flower at all, it must come from outside of us. It's not something that we're going to be able to muster up on our own. God must place it there. So it makes all the sense in the world to continually pray, Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. And to have full expectation that he's good on delivery. And yet, yet God's kingdom operates by starting small. So even as you can sort of wax rhapsodic about God being able to save the sinner and transform the sinner from the outside by a gift of righteousness we don't deserve, it we can't get away from the fact that It often does look pretty insignificant and tiny. I mean, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, then then you know this. It's, in fact, not all that easy to see a mustard seed. At the time, it was probably the smallest known seed in the area. And it doesn't take much yeast, much leaven, in order for it to work through the entire batch of dough. This picture of the kingdom of God must have been disappointing to the disciples of Jesus at the time. I mean, they had staked their lives on Jesus' kingdom being something that was going to eventually overthrow the Roman authorities. No doubt when they thought of Jesus as Messiah, that was the picture they had in their mind. He was going to restore the throne of David. And what was David? David was a warrior king. So it makes sense. Son of David's going to do the same thing. I mean, he had every reason to do so. Rome was corrupt and their puppet leaders that they installed over Jerusalem were corrupt. And, you know, make all the sense in the world for him to... Bring in his kingdom like a mighty redwood tree. But no, the picture he gives is this unimpressive mustard seed. And I wonder, I wonder if at times the apparent smallness and insignificance of the kingdom of God is disappointing to you as well. When we pray for greatness and instead he, he humbles us, we get disappointed by this kingdom. Or we, we think that God ought to rule by placing the right leaders in political office so they can pass laws to make this country more just. But I'm not telling any tales out of school that most of the time, that doesn't happen. And the, you know, the constant temptation for us is to try and to bring the kingdom from the top down, rather than the bottom up. But I, I, I gotta say, it's it's just it's not how the kingdom operates. Don't forget this picture of the mustard seed. Let me illustrate it. Helmut Thielicke was a pastor in Germany during World War II and really tried to shepherd a flock at the height of World War II. He illustrates the smallness of God's kingdom well. He says, quote, "...when I became a pastor and conducted my first Bible study..." I went into it with the determination to trust in Jesus, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. I said these words to myself in order to assure myself that even Hitler, who was then in the saddle, and his dreadful power machine were merely puppets hanging by strings in the hands of my mighty Lord. And in the Bible study hour, I was faced by two very old ladies and a still older organist. He was a very worthy man, Teelika says, but his fingers were, were palsied and this was embarrassing, embarrassingly apparent in his playing. So this was the accomplishment of this Lord, to whom all power in heaven and on earth have been given. Supposedly given? Outside marched the battalions of youth who were subject to altogether different lords. This was all he had to set before me on that evening? Two old ladies and a palsied organist? What did he have to offer anyway? And if it really were nothing more than this, then isn't he... Refuted? Well, no. Jesus said in this parable, this is going to be how the kingdom of God operates. Small, insignificant. For about six years, I planted a church in the heart of New York City in Manhattan, and when we were when we were just getting going, I had invited a number of people from the neighborhood over to my apartment for dinner and Bible study. And at the same time, right around the same time, I was contacted by the producer of a pretty well-known, uh, pretty popular podcast called Startup. It was affiliated with National Public Radio and This American Life and had a, a lot of the same sorts of people working on it. And so they, I think they had a million listeners per episode at that time. And what they wanted to do was follow me around as a church planter in New York City and basically do a whole season of their show about our work in the city. Well, this is like an amazing opportunity, if not terrifying. And so the producer wanted to know where we're at. And I said, well, I got good news. You know, I've invited... Uh, you know, dozens of people that I've met on the streets of New York to come over to our apartment. And I've had 25 people tell me that they're going to come. So join us at the apartment on Tuesday night. Bring your mic, the whole thing. So sure enough, she shows up with her, with her big boom mic and all her recording equipment ready to see something dynamic and exciting, a new, exciting vision for churches in the city. And, sure enough, the 25 people did not show up at all. In fact, if you included all three persons of the Trinity and the five people in my family, we had 12 total, which means four showed up. I was... Embarrassed, and I was convinced at least that night I need to find a different career. But this is how God said His kingdom would operate small, seemingly insignificant little things like that. You know, every once in a while I go to church when I was a kid with my parents, we didn't go all that often, but every once in a while we go. And I don't remember anything about it really, except one time when I was like five or six years old, for a brief time, there was this guy in the children's ministry at this church we went to with a big red afro. I think his name was Steve. I don't remember really anything else about Steve except the big red afro. And this, that Steve, every time he saw me, was super excited to see me. And that Steve knew my name. Hey, Eric, great to have you back here again. It was a brief little time in my life when I was five or six years old. I don't even remember the age. But I do remember Steve, the red-haired Afro guy. I haven't seen him since. I'm 44. But 38 years later, I remember Steve the Afro guy because he welcomed me in the name of Jesus. The kingdom of God operates like that. This is the way it's been. And this is the way it will be. The first disciples were a ragtag bunch of fishermen, ex-tax collectors, and zealots. The people Jesus healed were not people of great cultural influence most of the time, but they were oddballs and strangers and outcasts. And even our Lord himself, we're told by Isaiah, had nothing attractive by his nature that would draw people to him. After all, if we look at it from the perspective of the average person in the first century, there could be nothing seemingly more insignificant than a Jewish man from a small corner of Israel that ends up being murdered by crucifixion. But that is how the kingdom of God operates. And yet, as I acknowledge that, we also do have to acknowledge in the parable, God's kingdom does operate through growth. It does grow. As Jesus goes on to tell us in the parable, the mustard seed, yes, is tiny, even infinitesimal, but grows into the biggest tree in the garden with birds perching on its branches. The yeast eventually takes over all the dough that it was placed into. And so it's appropriate for us to acknowledge that, yes, this is how God's kingdom operates too. So Jesus doesn't just end up as a murdered Jewish rabbi, but as the one risen from the dead, defeating the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yes, the church was a small, insignificant group of people, but just 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, it had grown to thousands. By the end of the first century, the mighty Roman Empire, who the people so wanted Jesus to defeat, were defeated not by armies and kings of this world, but by the simple preaching of the good news, that Jesus of Nazareth had lived, died, and rose from the dead, For the salvation of their souls. Through that message, the Roman Empire's hearts were converted and transformed. Yes, the kingdom of God grows. Small and significant, not in the way that we might expect naturally or want, but it's growing. It all reminds me a little bit of something I I learned from a man named Les Fields about the Chinese bamboo tree. Probably, I would imagine some of you know how this particular bamboo tree works, but it's, it's quite a bit different from most trees in that it doesn't grow in the usual fashion. While most trees, of course, grow steadily over a period of years, the Chinese bamboo tree doesn't break through the ground for four years. For four years, it doesn't break through the ground at all. Nevertheless, every single day, the tree needs to be watered and fertilized, taken care of like any other plant or tree. But four years, no signs of life, no signs of growth. So just imagine planting one of these trees in your front yard, and every day you water the spot and make sure it's properly fertilized. Your neighbors see you doing this, and after a while, start to look at you like you're insane because you're watering a patch of dirt with no particular growth at all. They say, why are you watering and fertilizing that spot for the last two and a half years, buddy? And you say, I'm growing a bamboo tree. And they say, aha, okay. And then they quietly call the authorities to get you taken away. Nevertheless, every day, seemingly no sign of life. But then in the fifth year of the Chinese bamboo trees, life, something amazing happens. It breaks through the ground. And in a period of just five weeks, it grows 90 feet tall. Take that, neighbor. (laughs) I mean, it grows so fast, it's almost as if you can see the tree growing before your very eyes. You know, 90 feet in five weeks. Now, when did the tree start growing? The whole time. The whole time it was it was there. It just wasn't seen yet. Yeah, God's kingdom grows like that. From 2015 to 2020, I planted that church in New York City. We called it Epiphany Church. And I can honestly say it was by far and away the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life. Attendance was entirely unpredictable and funding was always stressful as my congregation was almost entirely made up of people in their 20s with lots of zeal and lots of student debt. It was super transient. People were always in and out. The average length of time people live in New York City, specifically Manhattan, is two years so every time we'd start to gain ground with somebody, well, they got a job offer somewhere else. Oh, they're going to college somewhere else. Oh, I got a thing. This, you know, it, people were always in and out of the city. It was incredibly difficult. And there were many, many days where I wondered if we were going to make it, however one defines making it in this context. And that foreboding feeling of making it only grew in 2020. As weeks turned into months of online meetings, Zoom, Bible studies, more and more people moved away. By the time we got back together for in-person services, about 70% of our people had moved out of the city. Nevertheless, on August 2nd of that year, our little church plant Began to meet for in-person services again. We were gonna do it no matter what, no matter how few people, or how many people had moved out of the city. And I gotta say, I was hopeful, and I was, I was, I, I walked into that building knowing many people had left, but, but hoping that there would be the remnant, you know. So we got everything ready for service. I nervously prepared myself in the back hallway of this beautiful historic church waiting to see who would show up. And finally, in an eager anticipation, I sort of looked out into this beautiful sanctuary and saw only a few scattered souls spread out across every single one of the pews. The room was... Painfully silent. Awkward. The reality that we probably couldn't make it sunk in and hit me extraordinarily hard. I didn't, I didn't want to even go through with the service. And yet we, we did. For the few that were gathered, We sang together, we prayed together, I preached my sermon. By the way, it is uncomfortable to preach a sermon to like three people, because they, I mean, you're looking right in their eyeballs. You can't avoid it. And they're looking at you, you know, it's, oof. Nevertheless, you plunge forward. And then we had communion at the end of the service. And amid that tiny group walking to the altar, there was a couple. The husband had been converted under our ministry well over a year prior and had faithfully attended just about every week, whether in person or on Zoom or whatever it was. But his his wife, his wife, well, she was vastly more skeptical. She had only ever come to church once before. And even then, it was only because he had begged her to come. She didn't really want anything to do with church. She had had experiences when she was younger, and she knew it wasn't for her. And yet, here she was, walking up to the altar... It turned out, see, in the weeks and months of this dark lockdown period, she had started having discussions about the faith with her husband, and eventually me, and she was led to the light. Now, for the first time, she was coming to receive communion, coming to be told that her sins were forgiven, And in my grief over the realization that this church plant may not be able to make it, God was shining a ray of hope by bringing new life and healing to yet another sinner gathered before Him. When I began planting the church, If I was honest with you, even though I could recite this parable, I liked to think of our church plan as being something strong and mighty, like a redwood tree. Sure, we'd start small, but eventually we'd grow into a large church, able to do great things in the world to transform the city for Jesus Christ. But over the course of time, the words of this parable sunk in more and more, and I saw things differently. I began to see our church more identify with the mustard seed Jesus refers to in our parable. Maybe unnoticed, maybe unimpressive. Fragile? And yet, from its initial planting over time, growing in ways that the naked eye wouldn't naturally expect. One by one even. Yes, God's kingdom is growing. So in closing, you you may not feel on the personal level that God is always working his kingdom in your life. I mean, if you're really honest, you do a... An inventory of things you you find that you still seem to struggle with some of the same old sins. Maybe, maybe there's sins that you thought you had licked. You know, you, you you thought, well, God gave me the victory over that, and then boom! It, I mean, all of a sudden you find yourself falling back into a thing that you thought you had defeated, that you thought you had victory over. Well, your attitude doesn't seem to be all that different. Let me, let me just assure you that for you who trust in Jesus, that He is working, that His kingdom in you may not look as impressive as you would expect, but Saints, don't forget He's not done with you. Trust Him because And this is just me quoting the scripture. This isn't some like happy saying that we say in Christian lingo talk. This is directly God's word to you. I mean you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, his kingdom is not done growing in your life. He will complete the work he's started. No matter how unimpressive you feel or no matter how much you struggle, he's not done. He's got you. As your sign says out there, What's important isn't so much that you are holding fast to Christ. What's really important is he's holding fast to you. He's got you. He promises that the mustard seed he's planted in you by his word is growing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that even though your kingdom comes in ways that might seem insignificant or unimpressive. Nevertheless, it is powerful. I thank you that the kingdom that we could not ascertain in it of our own strength has been given to us purely by grace and mercy on account of what Jesus has done for us. And I thank you that as a result, you are growing your kingdom in us. I pray that you give us faith to accept that and to revel in it and to take joy in it as we continue on with this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.